Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to this week's podcast of District 34. If you're joining us on Rockfin, we will be streaming here live on our podcast going forward. If you're listening to us on the radio, please come over to Rockfin, spelled R-O-K-F-I-N, to join in the live broadcast. Uh, so this week's guest I'm really excited to talk to is uh, Shahid Buttar. We've had him on the podcast before. He is not only running against Nancy Pelosi in CD12, he is also a constitutional attorney and has worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation on First Amendment rights. Welcome, Shahid. It's so good to be with you, Tina. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off talking about your recent endorsement from Mike Ravel, because I think that's a powerhouse of an endorsement. This is a guy who not only ran for president this last term on uh, anti-military industrial complex issues, but he has a long uh, history of fighting the military industrial complex. And I think that his endorsement will add credence also to your uh, criminal reform or criminal justice reform platform as well. So what was the conversation that you had with Mike and what were the reasons that he gave you for wanting to endorse you? I am so excited about Senator Gravel's endorsement. And it really took the form of him asking me about my background and uh, my path to the race. And we talked about coming from an immigrant family and my work in the impact litigation arena, expanding human rights right. to include marriage equality for LGBT couples and my work in DC at the Bill of Rights Defense Committee and then later at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, finding the surveillance state. And I do see, and I think he sees a through thread connecting his legacy and the work that I've done as an advocate and the work that I hope to continue to do <clears throat> as a member of Congress. You know, Mike Ravel, there aren't a lot of bona fide actual constitutional heroes, right? right. There, I can think of a handful. Edward Snowden is one of them. Daniel Ellsberg is another. And Mike yeah. Ravel might be the There's others, you know, particularly in the sphere of whistleblowers and the elected officials who defend them. But Mike Ravel, in a prior constitutional crisis under the Nixon administration, That's right. helped defend our republic in a way that really nobody has since. And I'd love to just take a minute to unpack it. There yeah. was a history uh, that the Pentagon had created, that had written explaining the true story of the origin in the war in Vietnam. And it differed dramatically from the official narrative that we were told in the press. Mm -hmm. And a whistleblower from the Rand Corporation, Daniel Ellsberg, courageously, with an old school Xerox physical photocopier, copies page by page this right. tome, right? And he brings it to Congress. And this very dramatic set of things ensue, including 17 lawsuits between the Justice Department and different newspapers that right. organized to defend First Amendment principles and make sure that the American people could hear the truth, something that does not happen so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And a courageous member of the Senate, Mike Ravel from Alaska, who read portions of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. That's how we know. Congressman, I want to thank you very, very personally, and state in a very unusual fashion uh, something that, that should be noted for history. That is that the first time you and I met was when we, a few hours ago, shook hands at this witness table. I am acquainted with your record. I know that uh, you were one of the early ones back in May of 1965 to oppose our involvement in Vietnam. I know what that opposition has cost you 
as a person uh, to this committee. Take the time to focus on me for a second. Uh, I have to say that I have been seriously concerned about American involvement in Vietnam from the very beginning. I think it was dead wrong. And uh, I think those of us who felt that way at that time have been vindicated. Uh, I guess that's about all I can say. I'm not trying to crow or anything. I'm not trying to say I told you so. But I think if we've had this conviction, such as you and I hold, I think we've got to keep on. We've got to keep up the... And I repeat again, what's wrong with this nation? And what's at issue at this particular point in our history is not the fact that the American people have lost faith and trust in its leaders, but the very simple fact that over the last 20 years, up to today, the American leadership has not demonstrated, has not had the faith and trust in the American people. And had that faith and trust and straightforwardness been present, this nation would not be in the mess it's in today. And these papers that I'm reading bring that case out more clearly than I could ever write it. The Pentagon, it's in three tiers. I'm reading summaries of narratives. The narratives are based upon the documents themselves. Mm -hmm. Congressman, if you'll permit me, I'll continue to read. I'd, I'd like to make, summary. I'd just like to offer one sentence, Senator, and that is if the... Backed by the United States, DM refused, and I think these are important lines. Backed by the United States, DM refused to open consultation with the North Vietnamese concerning general elections when the date for these fell due in July 1955. Pressing his military advantage against the sects, he moved to consolidate his position existing economic and financial agreements with France and called upon France to denounce the Genevers of the Geneva Accords accords and pursued an international and domestic policy of anti-communism. Both Vietnams took the view that temporary. But statements could not gainsay the practical import of the that the Vietnam War was built on a bed of lies, a built a bed yeah. of imperial lies, effectively. Uh, no, and very, had, let me yeah. let me stop you there because I think this is an important point you're making. The Vietnam War was sold to the American public as fighting communism, fighting right wing authoritarian governments, etc. It was supposed to be this sort of moral thing, but in reality, what was happening was Vietnam was fighting for its freedom from colonial France. So this also ties into this idea of, of money making when it comes to American multinational corporations, and I think that's the connection. Would you agree? Absolutely. And just to connect it, you know, we were told that the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were about fighting terror. And those yeah. similarly were about military industrial fiscal stimulus, taking money out of the pockets of working Americans and putting it in the pockets of weapons contractors. It's exactly what we were told to be aware of, knowledgeable and alert to prevent from happening by the architect of that system. Uh, mm -hmm. And I take a great deal of inspiration from, you know, the only person 
uh, whose endorsement would mean more to me than Mike Gravel is someone who's you know, long since no longer been with us, and that's Dwight Eisenhower. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research, these and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy, balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual, balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. 
so is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Just to connect this to the last piece on your prior question, in Gravel's endorsement as a voice who helped defend the person described by Richard Nixon as the most dangerous man in America, that's Daniel Ellsberg, I fast forward to our era when I see Edward Snowden come forward with revelations no less incendiary than what yeah. Daniel Ellsberg had, no less important for the American people to see, and there's no Mike Gravel in Congress to defend it. No, and so there's not. Ellsberg's a hero, Snowden, and Snowden is in exile, and I think Gravel understands that I aim to revive that legacy of independence from the executive branch, democratic transparency in the face of executive secrecy, championing the underlying peace, justice, and human rights principles that are military industrial complex offense. And I'm, uh, especially as an immigrant, I'll be honest with you, like the thing that goes through my head, people ask me about the Gravel endorsement and the first thing that comes to my mind is my mom, because I just wish she was still with us to, to hear this. I feel like she'd be really into it. And as an immigrant, uh, who came to this country with hope, you know, my parents' hopes that, uh, you know, I'd amount to something. I feel very grateful for the chance to stand in his footsteps in particular. Well, I think you've already definitely amounted to something, Shahid. <laughs> so I think, no, I think all of that's really important because there is no champion right now for Edward Snowden. We've seen both parties, both the Democrats and the Republicans, engage in the same sort of gameplay when it comes to war, when it comes to regime change, when it comes to enriching the military-industrial complex. Uh, you know, I think another good topic is what's going on in Iran right now. You have mm -hmm. a lot of Democrats that are pretty angry about what Trump did. But how can they be angry when they voted to give him this bloated defense budget? Very the few people voted against that. Bernie Sanders voted against it every time. Warren did twice. But other than that, it's, you know, Tulsi did, I think, once maybe. But... It, they've, they've done nothing but enable what's happening here because I think a lot of them also take money from the same patrons, whether it's Boeing, whether it's Raytheon, you know, go down the list. And in this, and it's not just the military industrial complex, it's also corporate America. I think they have, I think they're serving two separate business interests right now, right? But both entities, both the military industrial complex and corporate America benefit from these wars. So, uh, and it's really immoral. So let's talk about that for a second. At the debate this week in Iowa, this was the first time we actually saw foreign policy discussed in any length. And the topic obviously was Iran. And I doubt that they would have discussed foreign policy at any great length, that they weren't all after Trump on this, right? I think that's absolutely true. There's a bunch of things you raised I'd love to just address. Uh, one of them, when you talked about the role of weapons contractors, yeah. contriving foreign policy that is militaristic, that places U.S. lives and foreign lives at risk in the service of enriching defense contractors. Uh, you know, one of the particular members of Congress who is up to her neck in contributions from weapons manufacturers is Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. And the particular reason I'm running to unseat her is because when you talk about the military industrial complex, which incidentally includes corporate America, the, yes. the reason I described it as an industrial complex is precisely because it's not just the military, mm -hmm. right? And frankly, if you look just at the military, I mean, especially the people who sign up for the, you know, for volunteer service, these are people who 
you know, I don't have a problem with service members or veterans or military families. It's not the military. Right. It's the institutional apparatus surrounding it that is using it to make a buck. That's the gross part. Yeah. And it's not to say that with the military, you know, it's, it's the veterans are people who put their lives on the line to defend our country. It's our leaders who squander their sacrifice to extend imperial resource plunder across right. the world and accelerate climate crisis. You know, even if you looked at it charitably, there's no world in which there's no um, taking over the long time scale. There's no uh, perspective from which these serial interventions actually serve our country. Right. They serve right. corporations, but they place we, the people of the United States, at risk, not only of our resources being starved and denied from being spent on social needs like housing, like food, like uh, health care, mm -hmm. but also because uh, climate crisis, what we use the military for is not just abusing human rights and peace in other countries. We use it to extract oil. Yeah. And over the last 70 years, that's been a crucial vector in driving the climate crisis. And I do see often between the peace movement and the climate justice movement, a great deal of overlap in terms of the people. I see not nearly enough overlap in terms of the organizations and the rhetoric because climate justice must include unwinding militarism. That's kind of the contemporary extension of Dr. King's reflections yeah. uh, from another generation. Militarism and racism and capitalism, what does that look like when you put them all in a pot and you boil it down, that is militarism. That's what the military industrial resource extraction plunder complex is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and no, I mean, and I don't disagree with that. I think you're, you're completely spot on in that assessment. I would also add that we have a history of this. So it, particularly in Iran, we overturned a democratically elected government. The CIA participated in that. And after that happened, we reinstalled the Shah and gave what I think 40% of the oil fields to US corporations. So you cannot, we have a history of the CIA and our military intervening to protect uh, corporate interests in the country. And that, and, it, and it's, it, it didn't just start, you know, this is something we know that is verified. It's not conspiracy theory, it's just a fact of the matter. That was 70 years ago. And in Iran, it's really crucial to consider that history yeah. because people think about, you know, the current time slice as, the, as if it fell from the sky. Yeah. There are a lot of things that forced this to happen. And one of them was the serial interventions of yeah. our military industrial complex. The reason that we, in 1953, instigated a coup, the CIA, toppled a democratically elected leader in a liberal society. Iran was a liberal, relatively yeah. secular society. And the reason it's now a right-wing theocracy is because we, the U.S., after yeah. Iran nationalized its oil fields, saying to British companies and American companies, no, we're going to keep our petroleum for ourselves, thanks. America went in, we removed the leader, we put in place a brutal dictator, and yeah. the revolution that responded to him included students, secular, liberal students, and right-wing religious zealots. That's after right. The, the zealots slaughtered the students who's left. You know, thank you very much to our military. The reason that Iran is an intractable enemy today is because we screwed the pooch 70 years ago. And here's the thing I want to make really clear. Who paid the price for that? We, the people of the United States, That's right. and they, the people of Iran, the leaders nowhere get held accountable. Yeah. And I'm tired of we, the people of the world, paying the price for the belligerence and intransigence and frankly, idiocy of our leaders. Yeah, 100%. The platonomy is a global problem. And the divide, I always say the divide isn't this, it's this. If we don't do something um, about the way they continue to extract wealth or just do the bidding of their own, uh, their own power and wealth consolidation, 
we're we're just going to get more engrossed in poverty, more engrossed in doing nothing about climate change, all of these things. So it's time that, and you're right, it's, it's global. It's not just America. We all need to wake up to that reality and do something about it because there is more of us. And I think that's why they find folks like Bernie Sanders, you, AOC, so threatening is because you're bringing that message. You're not owned by a corporate entity or any sort of business interests. And you're willing to fight back against that and awaken the masses. There's more of us. So if we all like picked up a pitchfork, the proverbial pitchfork, and got angry about these things, it would change. There would be no other option or alternative. Absolutely. And just to you know, put wheels on the car, I, I think Bernie is very directly confronting exactly this locus mm-hmm. of he talks yeah. about taking the trillions of dollars that we waste on weapons and instead reorienting it to meet the needs of the future to effectuate the vision that Representative Ocasio-Cortez laid out in the Green New Deal, which I aim to support and help yeah. uh, define more granularly and secure the consensus to enact into policy. You know, when we see our actors on the national stage challenging the centrist consensus, yeah. we should recognize what's at stake. And it is nothing less than the future. Uh, and I'm very yeah. eager to follow their lead. And I think, uh, you know, this exact point here about the intersections of militarism and climate justice, I do think that's one area where I have something to offer Congress is an intersectional vision of climate justice that extends beyond energy policy. Right. And foreign policy is inextricably implicated, but often viewed as separate. Uh, but they're inextricably intertwined. You know, similarly, I see Ilhan Omar as a leading voice in challenging the abuses of our foreign policy and promoting human rights. And I think if, you know, more than any member of Congress, if there's somebody who I aim to emulate in office, it would very much be her. Yeah. And when I look at our respective districts, uh, you know, she represents a district in Minnesota. Uh, I'm running to represent San Francisco, California. There's no reason that San Francisco should be outflanked by Minnesota for the title of who's going to send uh, you know, a, a representative yeah. to Washington who's going to defend peace and justice principles. She needs backup, and I'm off. I'm very eager to offer it. If, if no other way, then by removing the principal impediment to their agenda, and the person who keeps kicking is yeah. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib down the stairs. Yeah, um, I know, and it's just not. It's not just Omar. She keeps kicking. I think she's gone off of, uh, gone after AOC and several other people. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi for a minute because she has been just an absolute enabler of all of the things we're discussing, including Trump. Okay. Uh, I think I think she's a politician's politician. She cares only about her own money and power. And she's been in that position for years. She's incredibly wealthy. I don't know if folks realize how wealthy she is. Uh, multi, 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 multi-millionaire, close to a billionaire many over times over. Million dollars. Okay, yeah. so yeah, something like this. You know, and I think um, just last month was coming to mind because they also discussed the new trade deal uh, this last Tuesday at the uh, debates. So you have a trade deal that they're, they all are sort of getting behind minus Bernie Sanders. It's a terrible trade deal. It does nothing about the um, there's there's label there's labor laws in there, labor uh, amendments in there, but they're not they don't have any teeth. They're not going to fix anything. They do nothing about the point of origin issues. Those increase slightly. Uh, there's zero protections for climate change problems, which is a big issue, I think. But she's now gone from saying. I'm not going to support this to I'm going to support it on on the feeble, feeblest of improvements. And, you know, so she's got this history of, the, of doing these things where it's it's not necessarily for the interest of the, her constituents or for anybody on the left or the American people, but it is generally to enrich herself. And I think that 
that is something that people need to be more aware of when they when they talk about Nancy Pelosi because she sort of has this idea or this uh, the media has created this idea about her that she's this really strong woman going after right wingers and and it's just simply not the case. So what do you find most egregious about Nancy Pelosi uh, this past year? Like what policy oh, issues okay. would separate you two? That's a that's a long list, but just yeah, that's a very long list, probably. It is unfortunately, but but to to start with the most egregious, and yeah. I think you're nailing the uh, you're hitting the nail on the head here in terms of the depiction of her yeah. as a liberal lion flying in the face of the reality of her as Trump's enabler in chief, and a couple thoughts. One, just think about where that media depiction comes from. It's corporate media right. spinning that story. So of yeah. course there is a contrived face of effectively controlled opposition. Yeah. And if someone is going to promote it, we should expect it to come from that source. Uh, two, you're, you're hitting on, uh, you, you noted for instance, Speaker Pelosi's uh, wealth. Um, I was gonna say obscene wealth. I don't wanna necessarily say that, but she is yeah. you know, as close to a billionaire as you can get without actually getting over the threshold. Exactly. And the idea that we have rule by just wealthy people, you know, if people think yeah. it's Trump versus Pelosi, you're talking about one billionaire versus somebody who is barely not a billionaire. And then we have Bloomberg and Steyer in the race. We live in a democracy, not a plutocracy. It, that is to say, you know, rule of the people, not the wealthy. And you'd never guess by looking at the national television, That's right. you know, discourse, the idea that these wealthy people are fighting over the futures of the rest of us when they have no qualification. And I should be very clear here, wealth in no way correlates to ability to govern. I agree. If that were true, Donald Trump wouldn't be the worst president since Andrew Jackson, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, it, it, they just are completely different skill sets. One is about how to enrich yourself, and the other is about how to protect your neighbors and defend the interests and values of the republic. Right. And you know, it just so happens, you know, Trump is putting the first before the second. And and I want to hammer here. You asked me what's the most egregious place. Yeah. Well, I think Pelosi has enabled Trump. And I would say it's with respect to this charade of an impeachment process. Ah, OK, let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, just just yesterday, the House delivered its articles to the Senate. I see this process as having been co-opted from before it ever began. And I want to lay out how the first was its delays. I was pounding this drum for nearly a year before Speaker Pelosi finally decided to show up for her oath of office. You know, everybody yeah. even just runs for Congress, swears an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Yeah. It is first responsibility of Congress is to check and balance the executive branch. And over the last year, every time our criminal president was offending the American people and undermining human rights and lying to us and inciting violence and putting our money in his pocket, what did she do? Nothing. She on her hands, exactly. She affirmatively admitted to not yeah. pursuing impeachment. And then so she finally does show up after nine months of delay, during which children are torn from their families, yeah. entire communities are shot up with masses of people killed with the president's support and enablement. And what does she do? She brings articles of impeachment that are limited to a political crime. Yeah. It's senseless. I mean, and just to make this clear, yes, inviting foreign interference in a U.S. election is a criminal act. Full stop. It should be impeachable, except we yeah. know that impeachment is more a political process than a legal one. So you would think that in the construction of the charges, we might think about, OK, what's going to sell? What are the political charges right. and the political problems and the, the pardon me, what are the offenses against the republic that can be politically presented to the American people? Right. And yes, inviting 
foreign interference in a U.S. election is one. Do you think that's going to really appeal to people who aren't Democrats? Like Democrats are going to care, yeah. right? Because they were, they were inviting foreign interference to undermine Democrats in an election. But do you think Republicans are going to really care about that? Independents yeah. should, but the, you know, the theater went on too long and there was this whole, you know, all of the, the, the discourse got muddied in these questions about witnesses right. at the end of the day, what they should have impeached the president for. And I'm not saying this after the fact, I said this nine months before Pelosi ever showed up were is human rights abuses in which unfortunately she's complicit by funding his concentration camps, the corruption of his administration, putting public funds into his pocket. And unfortunately that's also bipartisan yes. because the corporate democratic party is up to its neck and very similar corruption. And that we, I agree. The violence, which at least we could say are uniquely Trump's problem and Pence's problem and not Democratic problems, but none of those issues. None of those. Yeah, no, and I agree with you, Shahid, because I was saying the same thing nine months, and, and I will I will testify to the fact that you were saying this because I saw it. But here's the thing. The, the thing that she finally came to terms with just opened the party up for hypocrisy for the reasons you're describing, the corruption reasons. Joe Biden's son was collecting an incredible paycheck in that position, more so than any board member would in the United States of America. And I don't think quid pro quo. Huh? And what was his principal qualification? None. He had none whatsoever. That's exactly right. He had no principal qualification other than the fact that his father's Joe Biden. So here's the thing, quid pro quo. and, And I think people need to realize this. You don't need to see a actual you know, verifiable evidence-based paper trail for quid pro quo to happen. If somebody gives you a large donation, you know that they gave you that large donation. It's going to be in the back of your head. And every time you make a decision and know that you're going to need more money to run again for office, that's in your head. You're going to base decisions by that and that alone. So there doesn't need to be anything more than that for people to understand why money in politics is a problem, right? Absolutely. And this is where the Supreme Court goes off the rails in the Citizens United decision. hundred percent. Before that, you know, the, the court grapples with in these decisions, the appearance of corruption and they limit their analysis to understanding corruption very much through this 1.0 quid pro quo lens. But the fact right. of the matter is that influence can be abstract yes. and still problematic. Yeah. And once we allow people with big pockets, whether they're corporations or big money donors or you know billionaires in wine caves, to wield disproportionate <laughs> influence over the right over the policymaking process, it skews it and it takes it from being rule of the people and it turns it in the shadows into rule by the wealthy. Yeah. And if there's anything about this moment, perhaps we should give thanks for it's that at least the tension between democracy and plutocracy is out in the open. Uh, but I'm very eager both in Bernie's run against Trump and beating uh, a bastion of runaway, run amok predatory capitalism with a champion of human rights and the interests of we the people and in our race, you know, mine against Pelosi's, I'm a propertyless immigrant challenging the wealthiest member of Congress. Uh, and I think in both of those races, we see opportunities to vindicate not just progressive principles, not just peace and justice, not just worker rights, not just climate justice, but also democracy at mm-hmm. root in the face of its corporate co-optation. Yeah, and I think that is really what's at stake here, our democracy. We literally live under plutonomy right now, whether folks realize it or not. What More than 80% of the new wealth created the last two years went to the 1%. Wrap your head around that for a minute. This is an untenable and immoral economy. It's only working for a very few people. Um, let's go to San Francisco for a minute, uh, to your district, CD12. So San Francisco, like a lot of areas in California and actually across the country, has a large homeless problem right now. And 
this has been exa- exasperated by the income inequality in the country. We have folks that work full time and are sleeping in their car because they can't afford the rents. So there's a couple things going on here. I think uh, somewhere close to 70% of the homeless folks have medical conditions, Um, a a tremendous amount of them, close to 10% are veterans that fought wars. Like it's just a horrible situation. So I wanted to ask you what your ideas were in this area. I know that, you know, congressionally, you're gonna be dealing with a federal uh, situation, but in the state, we've also had problems with uh, laws that have been created over the last 20 years that have led to this place, these neoliberal ideas like Costa Hawkins, where we can't have rent control, et cetera. So That's talk right. us, talk or walk us through a little bit about your programs for um, fixing that problem. Thank you so much. And you're absolutely right to draw a focus on what I would describe as the most visible failure of our economic system. Yeah. You know, every day I hear people who are well resourced blind to the reality around them claim that capitalism works and you know, it, it, i would just invite them to look at the ground over which they walk and the people that they're literally stepping over and yeah. tell us once again how well this system is working we live in a land of plenty and there is plenty for yeah. all of us and the idea there are plenty of habitation spaces there's apartments there's buildings there are empty more empty houses than there are homeless people and the idea that people are sleeping without shelter in the street because we misallocate our resources to place profit and speculation interests before the human right to housing is I think a blatant reflection of our moral failing as a civilization and the need for dramatic change. Another thing you hit on this, but I wanna really emphasize it. A lot of people think that our unhoused neighbors are people who made bad choices or maybe they're addicted to something. More often than not, our unhoused neighbors are people who were housed, got sick, ran out of money and then got kicked into the street. That's who our unhoused neighbors are. They're sick people who we refuse to take care of because we put corporate profits before people. I'm not okay with that. And in terms of the programs to address it, I wanna break it down into at least, uh, let's say three different dimensions. The very first one, the direct intervention is housing. So the federal budget on block grants to incentivize the inclusion of affordable housing in private property development, that budget has fallen through the floor. And it's relatively neoliberal intervention, but at the very least, we need to bump it up by orders of magnitude. Since Pelosi has been in office, the budget for that program has fallen by something like 50%. And at the same time, and these are pennies in the military budget, which has continued to grow astronomically, relentlessly. Uh, And I think in that contrast lies a reflection of whose interests ultimately she's been defending. She has a reputation, well-deserved reputation of being a master legislator. As I look at the rise in military spending and the collapse on spending on affordable housing, it seems very clear to me on whose interests she is deploying her mastery. Uh, Further, beyond just uh, expanding the HUD budget, Bernie and the National Homes Guarantee have a transformative vision to make housing a human right. And it includes dramatic investments in public housing. That is to say, housing owned by we the people. That is a program that we really frankly haven't seen in the better part of a generation and reviving it and scaling up the public investment in social housing. I'm very, very excited about. Finally, and this is, it will seem unrelated, but there's a very crucial intersection that we've hit on now twice is Medicare for all. Yeah. Single, The single longest lever in federal policy we can pull to prevent homelessness, it's not going to do much to get people who are in the street now off the street, though it is going to help a lot with their various ailments, is Medicare for all. The single largest reason that people are forced into bankruptcy or homelessness 
is medical debt. Medicare for all will end medical debt as a phenomenon. Yeah. Period. And I think it's the it's it's incredibly important to recognize how homelessness and medicine intersect and the, that the fact of homelessness is an indictment not only of our failure in housing policy, but our failure in healthcare policy or what passes for it as well. 100% agree. And the, the idea that we have false scarcity in this country is is absolutely on point because there's no reason as the wealthiest nation around that we can't take care of the least among us. I think that's just a solid philosophical principle that we have. We have to raise that floor. At the bare minimum, if you um, are a contributing member to society, you should have access to be able to pay for rent. And at, at the bare <laughs> minimum, I'm going to go further, at the bare minimum of just being a human being, right. there's a dignity attached to being able to have housing provided for you. So, I, you know, I mean, a lot of folks probably think that's a very leftist principle, but I don't think it's crazy. I think that we have a moral obligation to each other. And without that, what are we? You know, I just, I don't understand this idea that, like you mentioned, walking over folks literally in the street. And I've seen this happen time and time again, also here in Los Angeles. People seem to be oblivious to that. And I just, it, to me, it's just, um, it's, an, it's an untenable, immoral position. Yes. And, and it's not just relentlessly abusive to each other that we maintain this paradigm of allocating yeah. according to the market. It's abusive to ourselves. I agree. Right. It forces people into, you know, when you talk, for instance, about the idea of contributing members of society, it's important to make sure that housing is available as a human right to anyone. And yeah, across I think, the board. I agree. Right. I agree. And, and I look at these through the lens of what are the choices that we can make through social policy that enable and expand the range of human choice and enable people to contribute the most back. I think people are so driven by desperation right now. That most of the contributions people could make back to our society are 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 off the table because people are just trying to survive. No, right? Shahid, that's correct. I mean, here's the thing: if you look at the data for not only for health issues, public because I think drug addiction is absolutely a, a health issue, alcoholism. These these are public health issues; they're not criminal issues in my mind. Yeah. And you also look at other. Uh, items like criminal issues, you will see that these are things coming out of places of despair. And that is right. absolutely directly related to the income inequality in the country. There's These things are inseparable, in my opinion. And you can see it, you know, you mentioned before about the disappointing percentage of unhoused people who are veterans. Yeah. And the rate God, it's disgusting. It is. And it's shameful. It's shameful. shameful. It's absolutely shameful. And the rates of veteran suicide, you know, speaking to this phenomenon of hopelessness yeah. is, is alarming. And I think also a glaring indictment of not only our housing policy and our healthcare policy, but here also our foreign policy, because we take yes. our, these you know, young people and we send them off to fight corporate wars and we bring them home and we abandon them. Yeah. And that's, there's just, it's wrong on so many different levels. I, I'm from a military family. My brother served in the U.S. Army Medical Corps and he was stationed at different points in Texas in South Carolina and South Korea. I have another brother who was uh, ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, and he was discharged when he developed asthma in college. Mm. Uh, and I see in you know their tales of the people they were around about you know everything from, particularly my brother when he served in Korea, understanding the things that drove the enlisted men to sign up to serve. It's basically a poverty draft. Hundred percent. So through this contrived scarcity that you described, you know we're pushing people into this position 
to volunteer their lives to defend the rest of us that is then often squandered in the service of these corporate corporate plunders. I know what it's like to struggle. I haven't ever uh, been in the military, but I understand uh, the feeling that might drive someone to enlist, understanding that they have few other options. Uh, you know, I escaped, I effectively escaped from rural Missouri and the south side of Chicago to get to the Bay Area 20 years ago. And in seeing people smarter than me stay behind in those circumstances, unable, frankly, right. to escape the gravity well of, you know, in Chicago, whether it's you know, the police industrial complex, which swept up any number of people around me, uh, or in rural Missouri, it tended to be much more, uh, you know, a media industrial complex that limited people's um, minds and what you see and what you can envision and learn about. I think there are a lot of different um, ways in which people can get derailed from achieving oh, the things yeah. that they might envision. And that's exactly what social policy can either facilitate or limit. And I've seen too many people limited by it. I've seen too many people driven into, you know, a right. military service they might not otherwise choose to pursue. I've seen too many people driven into prisons right. uh, by this relentless people eating money making scheme. Yeah, uh, the, the commonality between all of these things is, is uh, just out of control capitalism. So you bringing up uh, prisons for a second here. So that's reminding me to talk to you about something that I've paid attention to that does not get enough discourse. And that's this idea of prison gerrymandering. So yes. just to explain what that is to our viewers, prison gerrymandering is when they include prison populations in the constitutional districting. So meaning these folks are being included at the prison they're being housed in as opposed to where they actually live. So, and then what's even more egregious about this is ex-felons don't have the right to vote. So they're going to include these folks, not where they live, but at the prison where they're housed for districting purposes, for population, and then not give them the right to vote on top of it. So this to me is just one of the more egregious outcomes of, of our um, criminal justice system at this point. There's and it's something no that you've spoken to. Uh, so what would be your plans for fixing that? Yes, let me get to, I want to unpack two ways in which it's harmful. Okay. And so when you talk about districting and the inflation of the population in the districts where prisons are housed, just to make that clear, those are often rural conservative districts. Right. Their populations artificially inflated, meaning that they can pack more districts yeah. into the same space to represent basically the same voices of the conservative communities in which these prisoners are forced to live. That's exactly right, because these these folks literally have no voice, but they're 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 used as a number to to in, to create a larger population in these areas without having a voice whatsoever. It's so wrong. It's kind of like a modern three fifths compromise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it maps very directly. I mean, it is disproportionate representation. Hundred percent. And, the, and the, the second dynamic here, if the first one is the inflation yeah. of the voting strength of conservative areas, there is a commensurate deflation to the voting strength of the usually urban, low income, uh, very uh, heavily minority and usually democratic strongholds. Those districts are then uh, diminished because they have to cover more geographic space to include the population necessary to hit the threshold for a congressional district. So we're basically under-representing urban districts yeah. and hyper-representing rural districts. And the prison industrial slavery complex is a critical direct driver of that. In terms right. of fixing that, most of this has to happen at the states. 
California has an independent redistricting commission, which thankfully takes a lot of the politics out of what right. is in other states, a hyper-politicized process, gerrymandering, through which state legislators from different parties basically get in a room and figure out how they can all come back next year. How can we draw this map in a way that you and me and everybody else here gets to come back? And in what we think of democracy as voters picking their representatives, gerrymandering really reduces it to our representative picking who their voters are. And in California, we don't have that problem. In states that do, uh, this pernicious issue of how the yeah. districts are drawn and how prison populations are counted with respect to them. This is, you know, one, one thing we can do is depopulate the prisons, right? right? So, and that relates to anything from Justice Department grants to states to encourage effectively depopulating prisons, encouraging states to do what California has done since the Williams decision and find right. alternatives to incarceration, restorative justice, for instance. Those are programs that the, the federal government can't directly effectuate, but we can incentivize through grants in the same way that the Justice Department incentivizes any number of other things. Um, we can also, with respect to the prison gerrymandering issue, offer grants to state, sec uh, state secretaries of state uh, effectively to create the resources to unwind this problem. Part of it is statistics. Where do these people come from? How does that get vectored back into the census and how it impacts the way the lines are drawn? Um, that's a resource problem that we can also fix to some extent through grants. Um, I think at the end of the day, we have to use the bully pulpit in, in the political sphere to make right. sure people understand what's at stake here. I described before Medicare for all is the longest lever to fix homelessness. Mm. Ending prison gerrymandering is the longest lever we can pull to ensure a democratic majority. Uh, or alternative, we could say to just advance democratic principles in the electoral process. The two happen to conflate uh, because a majority of Americans just so happens to support civil rights and do support peace, right. not predatory uh, corporate extractive rule. And, and I think when we look, one of the reasons I'm excited about our next president, you know, Bernie understands this stuff and he yeah. understands intersections. And I think he's going to be using every tool in the federal policy toolbox to address all of these different dimensions of marginalization to ensure that we all get to participate in the new and brighter future in spite of our compounding crises. Yeah, 100 percent. And I love that you say our next president, Bernie, because I think he is going to win. <laughs> So um, you've also been endorsed by one of my favorite people, Dr. Cornell West. Uh, yeah. And I think Sean King from Real Justice also endorsed you recently. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about your criminal justice reform, because I think that's probably what's driving it in, in a large part, uh, both of those endorsements. Uh, yeah. One thing I think we've seen recently is this wave of public defenders running for district attorney offices. And I think this yeah. is a positive trend. We had recently uh, Chase Boudin won in San Francisco. I um, want to talk about him for a minute if I can. What was that? I, well, Chase, we just took over his old office here. Oh, in <laughs> I love that. I'm a big so fan of Chase. So, uh, so and we have... We have Rachel Sorry. Rossi that's now going to be running here in Los Angeles. Uh, uh -huh. So this is definitely a trend that I think is going to take hold. And I think the reason I think is important is because a public defender, and you know this as somebody who has studied the law, a public defender has a different lens for seeing the world. Even if somebody claims to be a, a progressive uh, DA in the sense that you've only gone after criminals, you've never been on the other side of the aisle, you, you simply can't know what that's about because you haven't experienced that worldview. So I think it's an important uh, voice that we have come to the front, right? But Absolutely. on the 
Yeah, so on the federal level, let me ask you this, because a district attorney is a very local position, even though it has a lot of uh, sort of rippling effect throughout the justice system. I think across the board right now, what we've seen is a justice system that's no longer no longer looking at justice. Um, if you look at things only at prosecution prosecution rates, like I'm going to prosecute these folks, and this is both at state and federal level, they're not looking at whether the person's innocent. They might bury evidence that might not suit their uh suit their case so they're just looking at high conviction rates because that's how we've sort of decided that we were going to measure success in this area which is wrong i don't think i don't think this is morally correct and i certainly don't think our justice system was created with this idea in mind but this is where we're at so two things here as your in your opinion as an attorney as somebody particularly that's studied constitutional law how did we get so far off track and how do we get back on track and secondly, uh, this trend of public defenders, is there a way to parlay that into something uh, in, on the federal level? Yes, absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll start with the second and that'll bridge okay. me into the So Chase's victory here, like Larry Krasner's in Philadelphia or Wesley Bell's in St. Louis, what represents a triumph of justice over the punitive alternative to it that we settle for. You know, justice can be something that is uh, predatory in the way that it has been, or it can be something that is restorative in the way that these new prosecutors aim to innovate. And Chase's election, when you talk about can we extend it into federal policy? Yes, absolutely. I'm very proud to have put dozens of volunteers on the street for weeks uh, before Chase's election to help ensure his victory and another person who endorsed us, a new democratic socialist on our board of supervisors, Dean Preston, who's a visionary uh, on housing policy. Yeah. And, you know, we're proud in our congressional campaign to have effectively lent our ground game to supporting local allies. And I think having demonstrated that success once before, we're absolutely poised to do it again. In terms of the how, to, how we got here, you asked, that was one of the questions that you asked. I think the way we got here was the same way that our policy in all these other arenas that we've talked about, healthcare and foreign policy went off the rails. And it's the intervention of ultimately predatory yeah. moneyed interest. When Eisenhower talked about a military industrial complex, he ultimately presaged the emergence of a domestic police industrial complex. And this is going to sound really convoluted, but follow me here. One of the points in history when mass incarceration really expanded mm -hmm. was in the 90s through the drug war right. that we know now in retrospect, the CIA contrived in yeah. order to fund its rogue foreign policy in countries including Nicaragua and where Iran, where we are once again flirting with yet another imperial intervention. I mean, the the sordid extent to which history repeats itself is right. entirely disappointing. But 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 this is an, an, a piece of the history worth remembering. How did we get here? Gary Webb unearthed this, an investigative reporter who documented the CIA's criminal participation in drug trafficking for which the agency has never been held responsible, just like the agency has never been held responsible for torture, over which there's a continuing cover-up. No one at the agency has ever been held responsible for its other human rights abuses across the global South. An open, unapologetic torturer leads the CIA. And one of the reasons she's available, her name is Gina Haspel, and one of the reasons she's not in prison where she belongs is because when she was the Speaker of the House last time, Nancy Pelosi refused to show up for work and alert the public to what she was read into in the form of Bush's torture program. Yeah. And you know, how, how did we get here? We got here by abandoning human rights and people putting their careers before principles. That's how we got here. 
And in terms of how do we get back to a place, well, not that we've ever been to a, in a place really in our nation's history where justice is meaningful, but how do we move forward into breathing new life into our commitments? One of them, the very first uh, in our uh, criminal justice platform in terms of its importance is the creation of a national registry of police officers mm. to make sure that when a cop gets fired for shooting someone or killing someone, they don't just get hired by the next police department down the street. That's how Tamir Rice in Cleveland died. Uh, we need right. to also statutorily overturn the qualified immunity doctrine. That's the doctrine it's judicially created that allows cops to get away with killing people. And when we overturn qualified immunity and we ensure the public servants are held accountable for their crimes, I think that'll go a long way toward ensuring that Americans aren't arbitrarily subject to lethal state violence. Other things we can do, enact the End Racial Profiling Act. Yeah. This is a proposal that's been on the congressional cutting floor for nearly two decades. It almost passed with the support of the Bush administration in 2001, effectively never to be seen since. And, and I can tell a story right. when I was an advocate in Washington, on, this was during the Obama administration, when we could not get Democrats in Congress to support the bill because they were waiting for Obama to support it and he never did. And it's, it's shameful, frankly, that we are talking about enacting a bill in 2020 that the that President Bush nearly did and ultimately stepped away from after the 9-11 attacks because other things came to the fore. We absolutely need to prohibit racial profiling at the federal level. It is long overdue. It's a no-brainer. It's not that complicated. It's very revealing to see corporate Democrats standing on the side yeah. of the police industrial complex instead of on the side of constitutional rights, their communities, their constituents, uh, and, and the words that we have already said on paper. Yeah, no, you're right. And you know, that's not the only example of this. Uh, uh, coming to mind right now is Nancy Pelosi has the PRO Act sitting on her desk, and it's been there for months. And this is the pro-labor bill that would strengthen uh, labor rights. It would get rid of work-to-right laws. It would add penalties to, for employers that tried to thwart union organization. It's that's a right. really important bill. It has, I think... Uh, well over the threshold to get it passed through the house at least but yet it sits on her desk meanwhile she's getting behind the the usmca which is the new nafta trade bill which so this is mind-boggling to me why would you get behind trump's trade bill with with the again the feeblest of improvements and let the pro act bills just sit on your desk well i would say why she does that is simply because uh, she values support from her corporate patrons before labor it's a, yeah. it's a really, and the act speaks louder than its words. I would say, and I think you're absolutely right to observe that contrast. To me, the interesting question is what does labor do about it, right? So if Pelosi has declared openly in no uncertain terms, and you're right to observe, she has declared openly that she favors corporate interests before labor interests. There is no act that labor more uh, direly needs than the protecting right to organize that. Yeah, the I possible agree. possible of the Employee Free Choice Act, but she doesn't support either of them. No. No, and I don't understand it. Yet labor unions line up behind her. And I just want to point out here that, you know, if, if people are concerned about the right to organize, we have opportunities to support alternatives. Two measures to which I'm very deeply committed are the Employee Free Choice Act and the Protecting Right to Organize Act. Right. In addition to Medicare for All, which is another uh, recurring demand from organized labor, you know, these three sets of Measures, because when we have Medicare for all, of course, then salaries can inflate because a lot of what labor unions have done is effectively traded salaries for benefits. Right. But when the benefits are then federally provided, 
it strengthens the union's bargaining position for <clears throat> more competitive salaries. And when we look across each of these different arenas, we see corporate Democrats abandoning labor in no uncertain terms. And it is frustrating to me to see so many labor unions still continue to march lockstep behind the corporate politicians that are fleecing them. Yeah. It's you know, kind of like Stockholm syndrome. I see not just in organized labor, but in many liberals, you know, fans of the impeachment process who don't understand how she threw the fight from the outset. Uh, you know, people who got conscripted into the resistance that she invited and then refused to show up for herself. I see a lot of voices who don't understand, frankly, the way that they're being fleeced. It's one reason I appreciate your voice so much as a journalist and the class of independent journalists that are shining a light on this disparity between the rhetoric that we hear from corporate media and the reality that we see of working families and laborers and the future generation's interests being abandoned by our yeah. so-called leaders. And the Protecting Right to Organize Act is a perfect example of it. Um, you know, it really the- is. It really is. And it's frustrating to me that this isn't getting more attention, uh, Shahid. And let me also bring this up because you're talking about the unions going in lockstep. And that has absolutely been the case. Although recently now we're seeing a little bit of diversion going on here. So you had the head of the F- AFL-CIO, who is uh, my union's part of that group, came out and is supporting Nancy Pelosi on this uh, trade bill. But you have on the other side the machinist union, you have the UAW uh, who have said no to this and are, are actively campaigning congressmen to or congresspersons to not vote yes on this. They're siding with Bernie Sanders on this. And I think they're right, and I'm glad to see them step up. And I would, I would say what's interesting to me this is if the UAW, this is the uh, auto workers union, if they are having a problem with that bill, that should tell everybody something because they had one of the highest thresholds for the uh, rules of origin in NAFTA, meaning that I think it was around 60% was what their thing is. And maybe it's raised a few percentage points under this renegotiated bill, but it's still not high enough to change the problem. It's still not going to fix what's broken in these trade bills. And I think the reason is, is they're not, um, the labor provisions are weak teeth. When there is a problem, they're not enforced. I don't think a single trade violation was enforced when it came to labor under NAFTA ever. Um, you know, and the outsourcing of jobs, which is the real issue here, isn't going to change with what we have now. And, and just one other to add to the table there, it's the uh, derogation of national sovereignty to yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Supranational bodies, right? So, so and, let ahead. me ask you this, because um, you're an attorney. I think you're you're sort of getting to, uh, to the fact that it preserves the investor state dispute um, settlement. Right. Right. It, it, so let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, it basically gives, for instance, hedge funds and corporate shareholders and corporations the opportunities to overturn national policies that are passed through a democratic consensus to protect things like worker rights and the environment. That's the story of corporate trade agreements beyond NAFTA, uh, beyond any one of them in particular. That is the reason they get passed. The underlying point of the corporate trade agreement is to create an adjudication mechanism through which trade disputes can be mediated. But those trade disputes get mediated at the cost of national policies. Yeah. And on the one hand, those national policies, we might say, are impediments to trade. And if we view that through the lens, say, of indigenous communities, what we're saying there is trade agreements are the global claim to resources for corporations in spite of the rights of the communities that sit right. on them and have long lived on them. It's so, so wrong. It's so wrong in multiple dimensions. It undermines human rights. They necessarily, it baked in the sauce of corporate agreements, is an acceleration of climate chaos. Um, they undermine labor rights and practice, and they undermine national sovereignty. 
And in each of these different yeah. dimensions, they're objectionable. I think one of the reasons I'm very excited to see the split between UAW and uh, you said it was the AFL CIO. CIO, yeah. You know, it, I think there's long been a challenge with the the larger the body, the more um, compelling and alluring is the opportunity to be co-opted by whatever mm -hmm. establishment is is sharing favors. And at the end of the day, no favor from the establishment uh, is worth the price of supporting yet another corporate trade agreement that will undermine worker rights, yeah. the environment. And, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely insane. The investors and the corporations are able to sue sovereign nations, states, governments, if they lose money because of these things. It, and, it's, and this isn't going into a court, it's going to three panel arbitration and they're, they're appointing the arbitrators. There's nothing good about this. And it's been supported by both parties for decades. So I'm glad that you brought that out. Um, what are some of the final things that you wanted to discuss that we haven't discussed yet that are either in your platform or on your mind right now? Uh, maybe I'll just note some of the remarkable momentum we're getting. You noted the endorsements. We have a growing and uh, really, to me, amazing field program. It is a hive. In our office, uh, we have a, uh, an office about two blocks away from the 16th and Mission BART station in San yeah. Francisco. There's mobilizations nearly every day. Uh, at any given point, there's a half dozen people in the office uh, on the phone uh, cutting turf. There's more people on the street. There's more people behind their computers. There's such a vast community emerging around our campaign, and it's growing every day. I feel just incredibly humbled by it and grateful for all the support. Uh, we're brushing up against uh, securing support from nearly 9,000 donors across the country. Wow. That's our goal for the end of the uh, month, and we'll hit it well before then. Um, we're getting ready to release our year-end numbers, which I'm looking forward to publicizing once they're uh, finalized, but they'll be compelling. And uh, it's safe to say that we're going to be uh, in a position to empirically verify being the strongest campaign to challenge Nancy Pelosi over the course of her 30-year career. And I'm looking forward to liberating the seat. That's fantastic. I am too. I would love to see you win this election and I'd love to see Bernie Sanders as president because this you is can what say us. Huh? It's me. It's us. Us, yes, me. not me, us. Exactly. The big us. <laughs> so um thanks for coming on, Shahid. It was great talking with you as always. You're so knowledgeable in so many areas. Um and I think you would be an absolute jewel in Congress. You are a national treasure. <sighs> You humble me. That's really kind. Thank you, Tina. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. I look forward to uh, hopefully talking to you again soon. Excellent.